0: Hypnosis in medicine, we don't really know where it's coming from, how it happens, but we do know that it has some pretty impressive effects in multiple arenas of medicine for patients and that's going to be the focus of our conversation today. You're listening to ReachMD, and I'm Dr. Matt Bernholtz. Joining me at Omni Education's Women's Health Annual Visit in New York is Dr. David Gandell. He's Clinical Professor of Obstetrics and Gynecology at Strong Memorial Hospital of the University of Rochester in Rochester, New York. Dr. Gandell, great to have you back with us. Thank you. Great to be here. So we have to continue talking about hypnosis. We did an interview about some of the basics on it. You gave us a primer for hypnosis in practice, but... There have been a number of case stories uh, that you've been a part of. You've witnessed a number of things that are just, they're head-scratching, both figuratively and literally, as to how hypnosis was able to do that. Um, Tell us a little bit about uh, some of the most interesting cases you've seen uh, of people who've been put into a hypnotic state, and it's helped them in ways that you would not have expected, um, maybe that any practitioner would have expected, for certain health issues.
1: Sure. So... For example, one of the vexing problems for some patients is severe and recurrent genital warts, condyloma acuminata. And I had a patient who uh, had failed to respond with all the traditional therapies, trichloroacetic acid, pedophilin, liquid nitrogen treatments, uh, injectable interferon. Uh, ultimately, uh, she was taken to the operating room and had a laser ablation of very extensive warts, and within two weeks, they had recurred. And they were, they were pretty bad. I mean, both external and internal. She turned out to be a good hypnotic subject. Uh, we, uh, I gave her suggestions regarding visualizing the warts as a dark cloud that dissipated with uh, sunshine. I gave other suggestions, uh, including uh, uh, direct ones that the warts were going to go away, and within two weeks they had, and they never came back. She's been a patient of mine for many years, and she had no recurrences. Now, why does that work? It's really unclear, but we know that uh, many people are what we call placebo responders, and every single medication that gets approval by the FDA has to have a placebo arm, and we know that in the placebo arm, often people get better. Uh, patients with severe problems with uh, impotence uh, were given Viagra or Sildenafil. There were people who were given placebos that all of a sudden were able to have responses that they'd never had uh, previously Um, Prior to the availability of antiviral medications, I used hypnosis for patients who were having recurrent genital herpes outbreaks. So we know that there can be physiologic effects. But I'll give you another kind of interesting example of a patient of mine. She was um, in her early 20s. She really wanted to pursue a career in nursing uh, and perhaps uh, higher level academic nursing. Uh, Her problem was that whenever she saw a needle, she would start to hyperventilate and actually faint. She would flat out have a syncopal episode. Uh, Did not know why. Uh, In talking to her, she also could not explain a little scar that was on her upper lip. So under hypnosis, uh, and she again was a moderate subject... Uh, we regressed her to, or I regressed her to her younger years. And And, define
0: moderate subject in this case. What do you mean by that?
1: Moderate subject, when somebody is under hypnosis, we do a number of suggestibility tests and see how they respond. So it could be having their arm go rigid and be unable to bend it, or having a foot on the floor and being unable to lift it off the floor, uh, or giving suggestions about... um, having uh, being in the desert and being very thirsty and watching them start to kind of smack their lips uh, and obviously have dryness and then smile and become relaxed when you suggest that they're now drinking cool water and these are these these uh, suggestions are all tabulated and if you are able to have five out of eight you're a moderate subject
0: and somehow being able to discern when the patient is, Genuinely responding or versus trying to please the physician? I mean, do you find that there's a discrepancy there sometimes?
1: Well, I think that there's an overlap of the two. But for example, when you suggest to them that they're going to be unable to speak, no matter how hard they try, but you're going to ask them a question and then you give them permission to answer, and for example, saying, What is your name? A good subject cannot say it. You'll see them struggling. They'll be able to, um, they they croak. And then you say, all right, now you can answer the question. And they say it with with complete ease. So, I mean, it's really an interesting process to observe.
0: Hmm. So let's come back to that case then. You talked about this nursing student hyperventilating, fainting every time she comes across a needle. She was a moderately suggestible individual. What happened next?
1: We took her back in time. Uh, in her memories to her younger age until we finally discovered the incident where this had occurred. and just to note, She was three, barely verbal, early verbal years. Uh, it's interesting when you take someone back because often they start talking in very childish uh, tone and with childish words. But I asked her to observe what had happened because she remembered she'd fallen and split her lip. She was bleeding, she was in pain. She saw herself in the emergency room, and I asked her to be able to see it as if it was on a videotape or a monitor, but not really feeling the emotion in any kind of a painful way. And she saw people holding her down. She saw herself struggling, screaming, shaking her head back and forth as they held her head and injected her lip with a needle. And she experienced it as an incredibly uh, fearful event, and then they sutured her. So I asked her to replay the video in her mind and instead see herself as being relaxed, see the hands on her as comforting her, see the needle as providing her relief of her pain. Uh, And you could see her affect change as she did this and then described it back in those terms. Um, and then I suggested that as she came back and w- as she awakened from the hypnotic state, she would remember that particular event, uh, but she would remember it in a different way as, as a nurturing kind of a calming and comforting event. And she came out of it and I waited to hear what would happen and she reported back not long afterwards that uh, she had no more issues dealing with needles. Uh, this is really something that Freud, when he initially toyed with hypnosis before he developed psychoanalytic theories, used, and they called it abreaction going back, experiencing a traumatic event, um, and then by experiencing it, describing it, becoming in control of it, and having it no longer impact on your future life.
0: Well, this is an element that I think demands some future inquiry or current inquiry, if I can get it out of you right now, How does access to memories get impacted by being in a hypnotic state? It seems like we hear this story about you're going to go um, back to certain memories that you couldn't access before. Why is being in a hypnotic state any more advantageous to being able to access certain memories uh, through one's childhood or, um, or early adulthood?
1: I believe that our higher brain functions often put blockages on our memories because it is protecting us. I mean, certainly, that was a memory that was uh, she was protecting herself from because it was so painful. And under hypnosis, uh, if a person is giving permission to let those memories come to the surface, and you're allowing them to do it and providing them safety to do it, it uh, gives permission to reach into and find those memories again.
0: Do people sometimes uh, misremember in hypnotic states? I mean, just because they can access... Do- uh, do some things get picked up um, incorrectly or uh, that you've had to go back and find out actually didn't happen? Do people sort of put a slant on things in their memories that uh, deviates from the truth?
1: Yeah, and that absolutely could happen. I mean, there's so many, uh, I mean, it's, it's by the same reason why eyewitnesses are not necessarily reliable witnesses. Uh, and it's also why information that's gleaned under hypnosis is not allowed in the court of law. Mm -hmm. because it may not necessarily be true but in a situation like this for example let's say it wasn't let's say that really didn't happen and it was something else that happened but if in fact that's her memory that's the one that's impacting on her and you use that memory and then you shift it to allow her to heal.
0: I see and is there any relationship between this and um, what some people tout as a ability of hypnosis to help people go further back than their own lives you hear about that do you do you hear that and think, you know, that doesn't really add up to me. That's going to be some sort of manifestation of their own imagination because these are imaginative individuals that you say are more suggestible to hypnosis. But when people talk about using hypnosis for other, other applications such as um, past lives and things like that, where do, you, where do you come into that? What do you think?
1: Um, I, I believe that these are very imaginative people that really want there to have been past lives. And so on some level they're, they're believing that. But uh, I think now we're entering almost the realm of the occult, and I think one of the things is hypnosis is not occult; it's not a stage tool; um, it's it's not fake. It is an ability to tap into the mind-body connection in ways that you can't do in our normal conscious state.
0: And somehow related to the placebo state, uh, placebo effect that you talked about. How do you think they interrelate? How does hypnosis and placebo effect? Um, how do they commingle?
1: Well, we, again, we know that a placebo is real. If somebody has pain and they're given um, a medicine and they're told that it's a type of morphine, a certain number of people will have relief of pain. Uh, and this is, we're talking about surgical pain. So the pain is real. Uh, how that works, why in the brain that's triggering a change in perception, we really don't understand. Um, but we know, for example, if someone has a battlefield injury and they uh, are in the, the midst of a fight, they're, they're trying to save their lives, often they don't perceive the pain that, they're, that they should perceive until they're finally away from the battle, they're safe, they look down, they see a major injury and they go, oh my God, this really hurts. Mm-hmm. So the mind has an amazing control over what the, uh, the body experience is.
0: Do we errantly chalk that up to adrenaline or shock in such cases in traumatic events where a person says, I didn't even know that I was in pain? Um, is that in some ways interconnected to being in a, an imposed, exogenously imposed hypnotic state?
1: Well, I think that adrenaline plays a role, but I think it, it shows you that when you're focused elsewhere, uh, you can block out other stimuli. So if you're focused on just survival, uh, the stimulus of the pain takes a back seat, and it's not experienced.
0: So where do you see hypnosis in medicine going uh, forward? I, is there any way in which um, you could envision it being better documented, uh, better captured uh, through technologies, um, diagnosed even? Uh, the ability to be able to, to say this person is in a hypnotic state because we can see it lighting up certain elements of a pet MRI, functional MRI, Uh, what have you scan, Uh, anything. I mean, what, even a blood test. (laughs) I mean, I'm trying to think laterally here, how can hypnosis gain more traction in medicine through available technologies or means?
1: Well, I I think first is just getting it out there that it works. So, I mean, the more that people experience it and have success with it, the more they'll understand it and offer it to patients. But how do you establish it scientifically? Uh, I I think it is with trying to do various kinds of scans that measure brain activity uh, and correlating it with what the person is being uh, told or guided under hypnosis. Uh, but, but that's a great idea, and I'm not sure I have the answer to that.
0: <laughs> Anybody ever put an EEG on an individual under hypnotic state? You'd y- think somebody must have.
1: They, yes, and, and uh, many textbooks about hypnosis talk about that and talk about documentation of EEG changes as people enter the hypnotic state as a means of measuring that that has occurred. Well,
0: before we wrap up, any uh, concluding thoughts on this?
1: Well, first, for people experiencing it, they shouldn't be afraid of it. Um, they should have an open mind, and it's something that on a personal level for our health care providers or for their patients they need to consider as an option.
0: Well, Dr. Gundell, this is sort of a mind-blowing, and I mean that in every sense of the word uh, interview because I'm learning a ton about uh, your perspectives on this. It's very much under-discussed. It's a subject that doesn't come up very much. I've done many interviews, and I've never interviewed somebody on the applications of hypnosis in medicine to give you an idea um, of how rarely it comes across. So uh, kudos to you for putting it out there and for taking some of the, um, the flack probably on the practice side because I imagine on, on the upfront side, you have to do a lot of... Um, work up front with these patients um, that isn't going to get immediately reimbursed, um, that isn't going to be recognized um, as an instant treatment, um, unlike that drug that might come around This is you're going to get this, and that's going to solve your woes. Uh, we've been talking with Dr. David Gandel um, on hypnosis in medicine. I'm Dr. Matt Bernholtz, and I've been your host. For access to this and other important content in all fields of medicine, visit ReachMD.com. And thanks, as always, for listening.